Hello, Miss Yell. Today the scripture reading is Matthew 5, 17 to 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands the teachers, others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you are certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was just that was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the face of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go to be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift again. Settle the matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it, oh, sorry. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality takes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. And you need to say, all you need to say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pay for those who persecute you. That you may be found children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors are doing that. And if, you, <clears throat> and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Julie. Well, welcome one more time. Thank you for uh, listening uh, to that passage. Uh, earlier this week, I was like, you know, I'm going to preach all of that. And then on Friday, I was like, there is no way I'm going to preach all of that. That's a lot of text. And so you're welcome for making that decision. Uh, <laughs> we are currently in a series walking through the Sermon on the Mount. If you couldn't tell from that reading of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is probably some of Jesus' most famous, most infamous, most provocative words, phrases, ideas. There are things that we are, for the most part, pretty familiar with. As Julie read, you know the eye for an eye commandment. You might know Jesus' teachings on adultery or divorce or lust. Like Those things are familiar to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, we also get, before you remove the speck from your neighbor's eye, please pull out the log from your own. So, familiar, famous, known statements, known ideas. But what we've said throughout this series is that sometimes, because of the familiarity we have with this passage, it can sort of be rendered into cliches or spiritual platitudes. It's like a thing that we like to talk about, a thing we like to put on a coffee mug, but not an idea that often holds a ton of weight for us. It's fun to say, love your enemies, until we actually try to love people we call our enemies, and then it gets really tricky. And we don't actually like it to have that much meaning or that much significance. So what we're doing is we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we have said week to week so far is that the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to try to simplify what it is and what it's doing and what it's accomplishing, is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for his people. So this is what my people look like. As you encounter me, as you follow me, as you get to know me, here is the alternative society that I am trying to build, the kingdom that is upside down and totally different from the kingdoms of the world, from Rome in your day or the politics of our own day. This is a vision for what my people can look like. In these words, Jesus is showing us his reality, his kingdom, and he is inviting us to know him, to follow him, and to become like him. Which is what has made these words so powerful throughout all of history, why they have been connected to revolutions that have upended the world throughout history. Because as we begin to take these words seriously as an actual invitation into a different kind of ethic, into a different kind of reality, we can't not help but disrupt the one that we live in currently. 
So Jesus is giving us this new picture, this new idea, this new vision, and an invitation to live an alternative way, his way. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this sort of long section of the Sermon on the Mount that includes some of Jesus' most provocative moments. But what we're going to do is we're going to break it up into two parts. So today, we're going to explore a big idea that helps us understand some of these provocative ideas. And then next week, we're going to come back together and start to apply the big idea to all of these case studies, so to say, that Jesus presents us with. Because these moments in this passage where Jesus says, you have heard that it said, but I tell you, are basically case studies. They're examples where Jesus is unpacking and walking through what love looks like in action. But before we get there, we're going to start with the big idea. How do we understand Jesus' provocative words? How do we understand what Jesus is saying in these moments? What is the big idea underneath all of it? And here's how I think we can summarize it as a big question. Here's the big question we're going to wrestle with today. It is this. How does Jesus both interpret and apply the Bible? How does Jesus interpret and apply the Bible? Now, for Jesus, the Bible is the law and the prophets, which is a shorthand way of saying all the Old Testament. Everything would have been included in the law and the prophets. And so the question on the table for Jesus is, how do you interpret all of that literature? How do you interpret all of that wisdom and apply it in the world around you today? How do we take these teachings, these ideas, and apply them into our own life? This is the heart of the section we're in right now. But it's also a question we're asking just all the time as humans who are trying to figure out what it looks like to be the people of God. I'm involved in this, uh, for lack of a better word, it's like a theological think tank. Um, and in the group is these like really fascinating humans. There is uh, one guy who is a pastor and a theologian from Ghana. And every time that we're having conversations, he's asking, how does the Bible that was written, first of all, to first century Jews in Palestine, but then translated over and over and over again, and most likely the translation he's using is English from like a 21st century English translation. How does this first century Bible translated by 21st century Englishmen apply to 2023 Ghana? How do you make sense of it in this context? How do you apply it in this context? And in the group also is this theologian from Pennsylvania, and who, for some reason, his context is really forcing him to wrestle with questions of, like, assisted suicide. And so we're in this group, and he's like, I don't, what does the Bible say to, like, medically assisted suicide? Does it say no? Does it say yes? I don't, how do you work these issues out? And what makes that tricky is that it doesn't directly address those questions. The Bible has lots to say about life, has lots to say about love, it has lots to say about living well, but it couldn't have imagined 2023 Ghana. And so we're always asking this question, how do we interpret and apply God's word, these ideas, these teachings, to the world in which we find ourselves in? How do we make sense of it? How do we interpret it? And just as we're always having this conversation about different ethics, about different questions, the people of Jesus' day are having this same conversation. And they're especially having this conversation in relationship to the Old Testament law or the Torah. The Torah, if you're familiar, maybe you are, is uh, basically 613 commands. 
Some of those are direct commands. Some of those are prohibitions, like, you know, don't do that thing, no cheeseburgers. And then this one is like, yes to this thing. So 613. Now, 613 seems like a crazy amount of laws, but uh, there's more than 613 situations in life. There's more than 613 moments you might find yourself in in the world around you. And so for people of Jesus' day, they had this law, and then they also had what they called Torah of the mouth, which was a running commentary on the Torah to help them interpret it. We call that today the Talmud which has been written down and is the collection of wisdom and thinking from rabbis and philosophers who are trying to help people understand what Torah meant. So, for example, in the Torah, it says that a priest can't touch a dead body, right? If you touch a dead body, you'll be unclean. But what happens, as in the case of Jesus' Good Samaritan sermon, when a priest is on the way to the temple, finds a body in the road, and is unsure what to do about it? Do you touch it and risk being unclean, or do you help because to neglect someone who is in need is also a violation of the law? Both of those are commands in Torah. And what the Talmud does is help people think through those commands to say, what do we do in a situation where two laws or more than one law feel like they are up against one another? And when Jesus shows up on the scene, there are basically two ways of handling this situation, which I'm telling you because Jesus is about to quote both of them. There's two ways of interpreting all of this Old Testament law and thinking. And they're represented by two different rabbis, two different people who are, rep- who are doing commentary on the scriptures at this moment. There's a guy named Rabbi Shammai and a guy named Rabbi Hillel. And there's a folk story that is probably a bit apocryphal, but I think illustrates the difference between these two thinkers. And here's how the story goes. The story goes like this, that there was a young man who came to the rabbi Shammai and was like, hey, if you can explain to me all the law, while I stand on one foot, I will convert to your religion, worship God forever, and be your disciple. And Shammai, deeply offended by that ask, says in response to the man that you do not understand God Not one stroke or letter of the law can be removed. And then he chases him away. Then the story goes on to say that that same young man later shows up to a different rabbi, a guy named Hillel. And he says the same thing to Hillel. He says, hey, you can explain to me the whole law, the whole story, while I stand on one foot, which for me would be very short, then I'll convert and I'll begin to worship your God. And Hillel says this, what you dislike, do not do to your friend. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. And the story goes that the man converted on the spot and became a disciple of Hillel. Obviously, the story was told by uh, one particular party. (laughs) Now, the reason I told you both these stories is that This group of thinkers are dominating the scene when Jesus shows up and begins to do the Sermon on the Mount. There are people on one side of him who represent the house of Shammai. And they believe that strict adherence to the law, that a kind of fundamentalist approach to the law is what is necessary, that you shouldn't remove one stroke, one letter from the whole thing, that if you do, you violate it really deeply. So, for example, 
There's a story in Jesus' life when his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see this and they're like, hey, you're violating the law. And Jesus' response is, uh, the law was created for man, not man for the law. But you can see in their approach to Jesus that they think that strict adherence to the law is what matters most. But then in that same community of people are folks who are trying to figure out how do you interpret it? Is there an interpretive key? And you see that when Jesus is asked, what's the most important command? Somebody's asking, like, how do you make sense of this whole doctrine? Is it just don't do what you dislike or is it something more than that? Jesus is surrounded by both of these schools of thinking and he is going to address them both in his sermon He's going to show us what it looks like to interpret and apply Scripture. In verse 17, this is what Jesus says to begin this section. He says, Don't even begin to think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. In this moment, Jesus is most likely responding to criticisms from the Pharisees or this house of Shammai school who see Jesus playing really loose with the law. They're worried that he's making it too light, too loving. And so they're like, hey, Jesus, where's the authority? Where's all this intensity? And so he responds by saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says this, I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exists, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Well, that's interesting. Jesus just quoted our rabbi from earlier and entered into that same discussion that not one stroke, not one yad, not one moment will disappear from the law. But then he says something so fascinating and deeply offensive to folks who are listening to it. He says, I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. This is a wild thing to say. If you remember the last time that Jesus said this, people almost stoned him to death. So it's risky to do it again. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. What does that mean, to fulfill the law? I think the word that is most helpful for us here is the word intention. And Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law he has come to restore the law to its original intention and to bring the law to its intended goal. Or as Jesus says in the text, to make it a reality. To make it a reality. Now that leads to a really important question, which is what was the intention of the Old Testament? Why was it given in the first place? And this is the question that Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, verse 36, when someone comes to Jesus and they say, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? How do you interpret all of this law? How do we apply it? What do we do with it? And Jesus says this thing, which you should pay attention to, because again, he's going to quote somebody in this moment. He says this. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets depend on these two things. Now notice that Jesus is quoting our Rabbi Hillel, who said all the law depends on doing 
to others at least things that are not dislikable. But Jesus takes that idea, flips it on its head, and says, yeah, yeah, it's so much more than that. It's similar, but so much more. Jesus says, for the law intends towards love. All the law, all the prophets, all the Old Testament writings depend on this, that you love God, that you love others, and that you love yourself. He says everything else is rooted in that. If you want an interpretive key, if you want an application key, it is about loving God, loving others, and loving yourself well, which is a much higher standard than the empty tolerance of Hillel, just don't do what you dislike to people. But it's also fundamentally different than the fundamentalist approach from his other side. This is what the whole thing was intended to produce in us. All 613 laws were about loving well. He's like, if you misunderstand that, you miss the whole thing. Now, with that said, let's rewind. What is the intention of the law? The intention of the law is to help us love well, to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves well. So when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, Jesus is saying two important things, that I've come to restore the law, to its intended goal, to make it about love, to remind you and to show you what this is about, the deep abiding love of God that transforms you to loving yourself and to loving others. But the second important thing is Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, which means to do what the law could not do. That's the Apostle Paul's language, which is to make love a reality in you, and in the world around you. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 3, for what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son, which is to make love, the goal of the law, the goal of the Bible, the goal of all this teaching, to make love real in you, in the world, in your communities, to make it a reality. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because he is the love of God incarnate and love accessible. He shows us what it looks to love, he shows us what it means to be loved, and he invites us into the way of love. That's what it means when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, to show you what love is, to show you the purpose and intent of the law and to invite you to know and follow me into the reality of love. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says this, In the past, God has spoken to our ancestors, to the prophets, at many times and in various ways. The writer of Hebrews is acknowledging like there's a story to this law, there's a story to this Old Testament that's good and that is right. And this is how God has spoken. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom all things have been made. The Son is the radiance of the God's glory and the exact representation of his being. It says God spoke through the law. God spoke through the prophets. And now God is speaking through his Son, revealing the intention of all of it to you right now, right here. 
And then the writer goes on to say this in Hebrews 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. What is the reality? The sun is. The law was a taste uh, foreshadowing of the love that would be made possible and complete in the person of Jesus that we are now invited to experience and to live into. So Jesus says, I'm fulfilling the law, which means I'm coming to reveal the love of God and to make it accessible and to make it possible. Now, oftentimes, when we talk about the law and we start talking about love, a criticism begins to arise, which is that uh, love is too easy to be the same as the law. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, maybe you've ever thought it before. I've heard this many times. As we begin to talk about God bringing love into the world, sometimes the criticism is that love is too easy or that love lessens, this is a phrase that comes to my mind, the righteous requirements of the law, that we've lessened it too much. That like the Rabbi Hillel, we've made the law about empty tolerance instead of holiness or righteousness. The Apostle Paul deals with a similar criticism in Romans where he says, should we go on sinning all the more just so that grace may abound? That's the criticism that's being offered to him. And I think Jesus knows this criticism intimately. And so in this passage, he responds to it by flipping the criticism on its head and challenging the Pharisees and by nature us. He says this in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a wild thing to say because the Pharisees are a group of people who believe that strict adherence to the law makes them righteous. And so to say that differently, the Pharisees believe that if you check the boxes really, really well, you're going to be righteous. And nobody was better at checking boxes than the Pharisees. This was their whole life. They memorized the 613 commands of the Torah. They practiced them, implemented them into their lives, directly divided their lives in order that they could live this way. Their adherence, their hoop jumping was excellent. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would be like the craziest standard to put on someone. Unless righteousness means something different than strict adherence to the law and hoop jumping, which it does. If you're here with us week one, Heather talked about how righteousness means right relationship in all directions. When Jesus says that I have come to fulfill the law and restore it to being about loving God, loving others, and loving yourself, Jesus is saying that true righteousness is about the practice of love. It is about right relationship in all directions with God, with yourself, with others, with the systems of the world around you. If you want to be righteous, you actually have to love well, which is why Jesus says the righteousness of the Pharisees means nothing. Because yes, they're good at fulfilling the law, but they are very bad at loving. I think about it like this. If the only reason I don't speed through a kid's school zone is because I'm afraid of consequences, you would not say, I love children. You're like, he's pretty bad, actually. 
There needs to be something else there that really motivates me. It's just a fear of consequences. I'm not righteous. And Jesus goes on to use all these different examples that we read. Which he's like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But just because you didn't kill somebody doesn't make you a good person. It's easy not to kill people. Have you ever tried reconciling with somebody? Have you ever tried treating somebody with dignity? Have you ever tried laying down legal proceedings to go make a relationship right? That's what love does, and that's way harder. His true love, when it begins to bubble up in you, it demands more than strict adherence to the law. It's not just about driving slow so I don't get a speeding ticket. It is about all of a sudden I love these people. And so I drive slow because of the dignity of the people around me and because of the dignity of myself. And if I really love Jesus, you actually might even begin to ask better questions, which is like, why are the roads built in such a way that you would drive fast through a school zone in the first place? Maybe you should ask some questions about that. And maybe you should ask questions about what's happening in that school because you love well. And it says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees because love invites us into something more. To fulfill the law is to love, and that calls us into something bigger, something more radical than the Pharisees could ever understand in their strict adherence. See, Jesus is not lessening the law. He is fulfilling it. He is pressing it to its intended goal, making the love of God a reality in and through us. To make love a reality in and through us. It's like inviting us into maturity, inviting us into abundance to say, I'm going to fulfill this thing in you, which is to make love possible. In the following section, which we'll look at next week, but Jesus gives us these case studies in which he implies his interpretive lens to the law. And in each of these moments, Jesus says, you have heard that murder or that lust or that oaths, that retaliation work this way. And then he keeps saying, but I tell you. And the way I think is helpful to think about this is Jesus is like, you've heard that you can do this and be righteous, but imagine what love might do in you if you just pressed a little further. You've heard not to murder is the end of it, but Jesus is like, what if you loved well and it led to reconciliation? Have you heard not to make oaths and contracts with people, but what if you were an honest person and your actions spoke really loudly of your love to one another? And you've heard these things, but imagine what love might do. My friend Jeremy Duncan, he's a pastor and writer, he says it this way, I think it's really beautiful. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, that story ends in the pursuit of peace. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, that story ends when people aren't objects anymore. You've heard it said, don't break your oath. I tell you, the story ends when your actions speak for themselves. You've heard an eye for an eye, but I say, retribution is overrated. You've heard hate your enemies, but I tell you, that one's been done. And trust me, it's not good news. When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, it is to press it to its end goal, which is the actualization, the reality of love in and through us to the world. He's not lessening the standards of the law. In fact, he is challenging us to something so much more, which is to ask, what if we loved well? 
like Jesus shows us. How might that actually change the way that we live and the way that we think and the priorities that we set? Church, this is what the Sermon on the Mount does for us. It invites us to live into the love of Jesus and to imagine what loving like Jesus might do in us, to us, and around us. How it might transform us from the inside out and how it might send us into the world to be salt and light, as we talked about last week. Next week, we'll look at it in practice and application more, but just as we close today, I want to ask ourselves the question, what if we took Jesus' words seriously? And what if we responded to Jesus' invitation in this moment to love like him? What if we heard in these words the summons and call to a new reality? What might happen for you in your own life and in the communities around you? Last week, I quoted uh, quite a bit Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I think it is worth ending with him again, uh, quoting from his letter from Birmingham Jail, because in that letter, he references the Sermon on the Mount a ton, kind of just running throughout the whole letter. And in this very beautiful section, he references all the things that we've just talked about. And I think it is maybe the best answer to the what-if question that we're asking. What if we loved like Jesus? This is what King says. We have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of our civilization. He says, There is a still voice crying out in terms that echo across the generations, saying, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform oppressors into friends. It is this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new one. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the heart of man. It is this type of love, Missio, the love of God that is revealed and made real in Jesus that you and I are invited to participate in too. To have it transform our own hearts from oppressors into friends. That's why we're here is because that's happened to us and then to live that reality around us, to make it real. Not perfectly, that's not our job. Our job is just to live out the way of Jesus because we believe it is an opportunity now. So what if, Monsieur? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your words. And they are so good and so challenging and so empowering and also convicting. So Lord, we hear them again today. As we hear that you are fulfilling the law, which is not about lessening it or getting away from it. It is about calling us into the maturity of existence with you about going further to the place of love, to what love demands. As we hear those words, would it evoke in us a new 
imagination for what we can do and how we can live with you in this world? Will we recognize that you're calling us into your way? Would we respond to that invitation in fullness? To be transformed by your love and to participate in your love in this world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.